am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Welcome to Election Shock Therapy. I'm Chris Moore, the political science department at Bethel University. Andy Bramson, also political science. And Mitchell Crumb, also political science. And our uh, engineer and good friend Sam Mulberry is off at a meeting. So you've got straight poli-sci all the time today. Hmm, lucky you. A <laughs> couple announcements. Would you please, if you would, uh, rate us on iTunes and uh, give us a review. That helps other people find us. And we appreciate everyone who's listened to us so far. We have tens and tens of listeners, <laughs> and we, we really appreciate it. Uh, also... Uh, we ha- you can send us questions, as many people have, uh, at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Please uh, uh, tell us, um, uh, any- ask us any questions. We'll try to address those in future, future shows, as we have in past shows as well. Lastly, uh, if you're near the Bethel University area, uh, we are planning um, some special events as we approach the election. Mm-hmm. We'll be doing a few things uh, leading uh, during Election Day itself, maybe like a sort of a live running feed of what's going to be happening during the election. More on that to come yes. uh, if I can get these two guys uh, on board with that. But gentlemen, we've had some really interesting stuff happen the last couple of days in American politics, and some of it has nothing to do with the election. Are your, are your veto pens ready? <laughs> I... They're not going to work, apparently. No. The, the ink ran dry in the veto pen. What That's happened right. yesterday, Andy? Well, Barack Obama has been president for a long time now. <laughs> um, he's been president since January of 2009. All three of my children have been born in his administration, and my mm-hmm. oldest is now seven and a half, so it's been a while. And do, you, do, when, you, do you think people identify with that? Do you think people identify with the pre- that what president they were born under? Um, yeah, my, and the president I was born under is still alive, interestingly enough. Mine too. Um, so, yeah, well, we, so we have the same one. Mitchell's, on the other hand, is dead. So even yeah. though Mitchell's younger than us, yeah. um, his president is no longer alive. So, yeah, that's right. Um, is that like your spirit animal? So. Like, do I have yeah. – is, is, is Carter my spirit animal as president? I just hope it's the the post-president Carter and not the president Carter that's my spirit <laughs> I'm animal. I'm okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> you wear lots of, lots of cardigan sweaters. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that Absolutely. is kind of my look. Yeah. <laughs> he is very lively. Actually, so a friend of mine on Facebook um, had – a picture with Jimmy Carter just this week. He was at an event with him, and so he's still very lively and very mentally active. But back to the the veto that uh, Chris act, uh, asked about. Um, Obama's been president a long time, and I brought that up because I think that matters in terms of Congress's willingness to challenge the president. And in he's particular, a lame he's, duck. He's a lame duck. He's out of here. He's got less than four months to go, and his own party no longer has a ton of interest in backing him loyally, especially on an issue like this bill, which was a bill that basically allows American citizens to sue foreign countries if they have somehow um, aided and abetted uh, acts of terrorism that harmed Americans, right? And so, in particular, this is seen as targeting Saudi Arabia. Um, and so the you know the Senate and the House both pretty overwhelmingly voted um, to back this bill, even though the president thinks it's a bad idea, um, thinks it could harm American security personnel, embassy personnel abroad. Um, so they you know the president's party pretty wholesale abandoned him. I didn't see the final tally in the House, but in the Senate, the only person who voted um, to sustain the president's veto of this bill was the Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid, who not coincidentally is um, also leaving office in January. So. Uh, basically, everybody who's up for re-election or ever plans to be up for re-election again in the Senate <laughs> voted against the president. Okay, so 
I was thinking about this. Is this just an overdetermined vote? First of all, I guess I should put some context on what I mean by overdetermined. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly unusual that the Senate, especially this divisive Senate, entering into an election year, would right. vote for anything 97 to 1. Especially uh, something the president doesn't want. Right? Oh, by the way, yeah. the two people who yeah. didn't vote for it were Tim Kaine, who's off running for vice president. <laughs> Excuse me, and Bernie Sanders, uh, who just finished running for president. And is Those are the two people something. who didn't vote. So if you're trying to add up and think, how do we, don't we have 100 senators? Right. Two didn't vote. Right. One voted against it. Harry Reid. Everybody else, everybody else yep. voted for it. This is the most bipartisan thing that's happened yep. in yep. eight years. <laughs> no, it's great. The president has unified the country. He's brought right. us together in overriding <laughs> his veto. <laughs> This is really strange, right? But in, in, I think we have a really mm-hmm. solid political science explanation for why this has happened. Every member of the Senate uh, ha- who wants to run for re-election, as Andy said, uh, can't be seen supporting the Saudi government over right. their local American right. constituents. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, and I mean, I'm going to talk today in um, my Parties and Elections course about um, David Mayhew's classic work on Congress. And his argument in, in there is that congressmen... Um, this is member the members of the House, members of the Senate are single-minded seekers of re-election. That is their mm-hmm. primary goal, and I think that's exactly what's driving this. Um, and you have a lot of interest in sort of supporting the president early on. I think if this vote happens three years ago, the president probably gets his party behind him, mm-hmm. and they probably you know suck it up and vote for the president because you don't want to injure your president. But again, at this point, there's just I mean his administration's practically done. This doesn't harm Hillary Clinton if she becomes the next president. Um, if she's, you know, for the Democrats. So really, I mean, there, there's almost no incentive to back him. And there's every incentive to back a bill that's going to be popular when they go back home, um, when Congress uh, you know, recesses, which is what, next week, I think. So um, no. so they want to go back and have nice conversations with their sure. constituents, not like, why did you support the Saudi conversations? Sure. Now, the um, the president's press secretary called this event incredibly embarrassing. Yes, he did. Which um, leads me to ask, gentlemen, do you think. Obama and the Obama administration had to know that a veto override was in the offing, right? Yes. No one oh, yeah. misses. No one just misguesses on a 97 to <laughs> 1 vote. If the vote's yeah. close, maybe yeah. they don't do their head yeah. counting right. But that's this is this no, is no. not close. So they had to know the veto mm-hmm. was coming. So here's my question. Did he veto this knowing the veto was getting, gonna, going to get overridden as a signal to the Saudis from the presidency? Uh, I think, uh, first of all, I mean, you could speak more to that. And I think the answer is probably yes. So mm-hmm. he wants to show that, um, you know, the uh, American, American, polit- uh, mm-hmm. yeah, Amer- America's position isn't to try to constantly go out and attack our allies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think even more than that, I think one of the things you just hit on um, is, you know, as, as, as Andy was already saying, you know, uh, politicians are single-minded election seekers. I mean, that's a mm-hmm. powerful, you know, sort of rational way to think about right. politics. Um, and I think that also applies when we look at the actions of the president as well. I think if we think about President Obama, one of the things that very well may be in his mind here is to actually strengthen um, his fellow party members in their bids for re-election. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons he may have gone ahead and vetoed this is so is precisely so that all of the Democrats could unify and actually mm-hmm. overwrite his veto. Mm-hmm. Because even more than going back, uh, even beyond what Andy has, I think, accurately mm-hmm. said and saying, you know, we didn't support the Saudis, we, sorted, we supported American. <laughs> right. Citizens, they can also now go back and say, "Oh, I'm not completely in line with President Obama. And right. I am different. I am yep. somebody who is willing to override his veto." And so, but isn't um, that strange? Given that Obama has reasonably high approval numbers right now, 
Uh, maybe to some degree, but you know, it's always good when you go back to constituents, especially mm-hmm. if you are in sort of a purple, purplish um, area. You know, mm-hmm. if you can say, "Oh, I'm the one who," you know, uh, "Yes, I generally toe the party line, but I also have a mind of my own, and I have our interests mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. at heart the most, and I'm not just following, you know, just sort of a sheep following along with the president." Yeah, I agree with that. I think it it is a generally a benefit, and the people that I mean, people that will, would want. Generally, want you to support the president on these issues are probably still going to be a lot of them are still going to lean towards saying, but on this issue, the president was wrong and the Congress was right. Um, and the other it's thing is, hard to most of the people who are hardcore, they can't uh, sue uh, a foreign government for you know for sponsoring terrorist acts. Sorry, what was the first part you said? I mean, th- th- no one's going to win the argument that national sovereignty right. and national security and mm-hmm. ally relations matters more than the lives of Americans, right? That, that's right. just a losing argument no right. matter where you're at in the United right. States. Exactly, exactly. So so I think even in, in the people who might be supportive of the president on this and are hardcore in the party, they're going to be safe votes if you're a Democratic senator anyway. So you're not yeah. really worrying about those people. So in the end of the day, is the, is the interpretation of this – that Obama is crazy like a fox. He vetoes something <laughs> knowing the veto is going to get overridden. Is he, is he like... We, we had this analogy back in 2009 that Obama's playing chess while the Congress is playing checkers. And that he's, <laughs> and he, and he's the grandmaster. He's, mm-hmm. he's legislatively mm-hmm. smarter. And I think since mm-hmm. then we've, we've sort of disproved that level of, mm-hmm. of legislative acumen. I mean, he's, he's a very intelligent man, but I don't think he outthinks Congress in three steps. But if we buy that this was all an intentional veto so it can intentionally be overridden... That's some grandmaster crap right there, isn't it? I when I when I look at Congress, yeah. when I think about Congress, I think that's usually what's going on. Actually, <laughs> I think you know when when you look at it, I you know mm. I mean you know usually I you know what uh, the the leaders of Congress at least and the presidency usually I think are very very careful thinking about what how is everything we're doing uh, in public going to play to the public, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I think very much like every time you know every time any anything that we see. Um, on the surface, you know, whether it's whether it's uh, vo- whether it's roll call votes, whether it's speeches, whether it's the you know positioning of the different people. I mean, that is that is pure theater. Mm-hmm. All of that is mm-hmm. there uh, for, yep. for 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 uh, for us to see. And as Andy already said, right, the the overriding mm-hmm. goal for Congress is to get reelected. I mean, even even um, you know even sort of the angry outbursts and accusations, all of that mm-hmm. is mutual in many ways i mean it's it's mu- it's for it's for their mutual benefit because the one side gets to say, "Oh, look at how terrible these people are, and mm-hmm. the other side gets to say, "Oh, look how strongly we are mm-hmm. you know and so and so when we look at something like the veto here, you know what we have mm-hmm. is is a golden opportunity where um you know it's costless i mean for both parties right. in many ways right. uh you know as you already said you know this is this is an opportunity where they can come out and be on the one hand unified and on the other hand show that they are separate from the president and all of these sorts of things. And I think, you know, what, what we just saw is, is, is pure theater and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. very effectively executed. Yeah, and so in terms of the president's motivation, too, the other thing I would just add is um, I, I would go with a simpler explanation for what he's doing. Maybe he is crazy like a fox, but I would just say the simple thing, which is I think he thinks this is the right policy decision. And I actually, mm. and, and mm-hmm. here I'm going to reveal that I'm not running for election this fall. I actually agree oh. with him. <laughs> I think we're all is, disappointed. I'll be honest. I know, I know, I know. It's a disappointment that I'm not declaring. But, um, <laughs> or probably anytime soon after this declaration. But I think he's right. I mean, I think this is probably not a great policy move. Uh, I think it's probably unenforceable. I don't see how you actually sue the Saudis and get them to pay American citizens or whoever else. Get right. Um, so I think he's right. I mean, what it does is it sort of angers our allies. It potentially could endanger... In, uh, Americans abroad and lead to sort of a tit for tat kind of mm-hmm. policy, and with what upside, right? Making Americans feel good because they can take these people to court, but 
probably not actually get anything out of it other than sort of a legal judgment in their favor, which probably doesn't actually lead anywhere. So, you know, I actually think the president's doing this on principle. And so perhaps it's that signaling, but I think it's also he just thinks it's the the right call. And I think in this instance, he's probably correct. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. So let me talk about, Andy, literally this, some of the practical implications of this. The concerns with allowing uh, U.S. citizens to sue the Saudi government. And by the way, we should just say if, um, there is no international government or I'm sorry, there is no international uh, court system right. by which we can sort of subpoena the Saudi government <laughs> right. and have uh, the crown prince show up in court right. to testify. <laughs> not that, that's not going to happen. But what we could do is sort of have, have American uh, citizens apply in an American court. Uh, to seek compensation, basically tort cases, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. for pain and suffering, uh, loss of life, uh, wrongful death, uh, um, for the on behalf of their family members uh, mm-hmm. who perished in 9-11. Sure. If they do that, the most, I think, unlikely, but the most uh, d- uh, damning outcome would be if the court finds that the Saudi government was, in fact, directly related to the right. 9-11 attacks, had fo- had knowledge of it, and ruled in favor of the uh, plaintiffs, this case the American citizens, mm-hmm. then we could imagine the court authorizing the seizure of Saudi assets inside the United States, sort of in the same way that a, you know, a person doesn't pay their child support payments could be have their wages mm-hmm. garnished. Mm-hmm. Perhaps certain Saudi assets could be right. seized and then, right. and then sold right. and, the, and, the pro, and the proceeds given to American citizens. Mm-hmm. This is incredibly unlikely. Right. Uh, it would be devastating to foreign relations with them. It would them. be devastating to foreign relations. It would them to do... Something similar to our assets, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So. It's, it's, and it's really unlikely because the court, I mean, even in the bill, the court has to find a clear-cut case right. the Saudi government right. had foreknowledge and was involved in the attacks. Right. And even <laughs> these recently disclosed 28 pages of the 9-11 Commission right. report, although they suggest that some senior officials may have had knowledge that al-Qaeda was planning an attack and some money may have flowed from Saudi officials right. to al-Qaeda forces, the dots don't connect. There isn't there right. isn't this full uh, uh, smoking gun that the Saudi government in some way authorized or applauded or financed the nine eleven attacks. Right, and mm-hmm. it doesn't make the, it's bad news for the Saudi government. That's why those twenty eight pages were classified. Right. But it's not going to be enough to stand up in court. No, not at all. Right. And, and again, I mean, it's, no, the Saudi Arabia is not renowned for its sort of governmental transparency, right? So you're not. It is a monarchy. <laughs> it is a monarchy. It's a very traditional monarchy where the monarch actually still rules. Um, and you know you're not going to get that information out of them. So I agree. I mean, like, you know, by the standard of innocent until proven guilty, you're just not going to get there. And we don't even need innocent until proven guilty in a in a civil case. But we're not. Yeah, I, we're I, I don't think we're going to. Gonna get, I don't think we're going to yeah. get preponderance right. of evidence right. here right. True. either. True. Okay. Well, the downside of this, as Andy also alluded to, is we could get uh, prosecution or uh, of of Americans abroad too. Uh, there's always been a long-standing mm-hmm. standard. Mm-hmm that uh, sovereign governments are not brought to court in other sovereign governments' legal systems. Uh, um, the United States is not sued in Venezuelan courts, mm-hmm. for example. Right. Um, <laughs> actually, nothing's although happening although in Although Chavez might have wanted now. to do that, actually. Well, nothing much is happening in Venezuelan courts right now because that country is in disarray. But well, anyway. there's that, too. <laughs> bless their hearts. But, oh, you are a Southerner. Bless your I heart. <laughs> I was born in South Carolina. What... Um, uh, but the danger here is then by ripping the bandaid off of that or ripping the seal off of that, maybe other countries be incentivized to sue the United States in some of their courts, too. So mm-hmm. we may have created a bad precedent. Here. Right. Right. It's, you know, but it won't be this president's problem. Because no, it'll uh, be the be next out. president's problem. <laughs> and um, we're burying the lead here because the big news story that everyone's paying attention to this week was the first debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Who won? 
Well, that's a complicated <laughs> question. That was a loaded uh, question. No, the, I think the, the simple answer on points is clearly Hillary Clinton. Uh, she came out. She was well prepared for this debate. She certainly um, you know, had very well prepared answers. She gave you know, very mostly pretty factual answers. Um, and she answered the questions pretty closely. Um, so I think clearly an advantage to her in that regard. Um, Trump actually came out much more disciplined than I expected in the first you know, 20 to 30 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought he looked pretty good. I thought he was doing a better job than I might have expected because I don't think he's a really great debater. Um, but it felt like after that, um, Hillary Clinton was very successful in baiting him. He pretty much um, seized the bait every time she threw it out there. Um, and it made him look kind of all over the place. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I had some, I think there were some downsides to both of their performances, but overall I would definitely give the edge to Hillary, which is a different question, and we should talk about this, about then as to whether this changes anything. I mean, does it actually move the Absolutely. the votes? Does it change the polling? I mean, does it really shift the opinions of Americans? And that I'm much, much less convinced on. But but I do think, that, like, if I was scoring this on points, she's the clear winner. Uh, yeah, in general, I would agree with that. And I think the other thing to... Um, think about as well is is who um, and and this is and this is what Andy alluded to there at the end is you know how 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 did this play to different demographics right. and you want to think about like who who was watching this who needed to be moved and I think you know for example I mean one of the groups that Trump has really struggled with and has been trying to kind of reclaim is um, particularly white uh, women mm-hmm. and you know Mitt, Mitt Romney actually uh, did did quite well with uh, with uh, white white women voters mm-hmm. and Trump has very much struggled with this with this demographic mm-hmm. and one of the things that, that I think you know if we look at this debate you know we had several moments mm-hmm. where Trump once again sort of reiterated or doubled down on insults of various women you know basically mm-hmm. um, you know doubling down A on strange beef with the former Miss Universe right yeah uh-huh. the, yeah so 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 yeah, so so the an incident that happened a number of years ago where he basically humiliated the fr- right. you know the Miss Universe uh, winner and like made her do sit ups and stuff because he was calling her Miss Piggy um, because she gained a few pounds after she won and things mm-hmm. like that and he sort of doubled yeah. down on the you know the fact that he was right and this was he was and you know he, in the debate I think the quote is I'm gonna. Maybe this isn't exactly right, but it's pretty close. He's like, she, quote unquote, she gained an enormous amount of weight and it was a real problem or something like that. Right. Is mm-hmm. what Trump said. So, mm-hmm. you know, which so has led to a really interesting uh, set of justifications on the far right <laughs> media where they've actually reported on how much weight this person gained and whether or not he was actually doing a good thing by helping her to retain her Miss Universe title, which is. Um, sort of pharisaical in how it's adjudicated but right. it's at the end of the day no one cares the, right, the, the right. optic here is that um donald trump uh um was humiliated a miss universe contestant that's what anyone right. doesn't remember about this yeah i mean yeah. and basically i mean yeah i mean i think the takeaway basically for anyone just casually watching is you know that the trump was willing to embarrass uh any woman who doesn't look like a Miss Universe winner. Right. Um, and yeah. so, you know, and so that's uh, not not very good if you're trying to win, you know, women women voters. And, you know, and, the, and not only that, of course, you know, Trump throughout the evening, you know, was trying to talk over Hillary. He didn't right. allow her to sort of give her points. You know, she was very respectful of him and allowed, you know, didn't interrupt him. And he was constantly trying to interrupt her, which sort of constantly gives this impression that that uh, the Trump doesn't really care to listen to women. He doesn't um, right. think that 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 uh, that Hillary sort of deserves to have a platform because, you know, she's a woman. And so why why should we want to hear what she has to say? Um, and so all of those things seem like they're going to play very, very badly to, as, you know, to mm-hmm. women. And I think there are other demographics. Now I'm going to well. interrupt you to ask about interrupting. Oh. <laughs> but do you think that this was an intentional strategy on Wrong. one or both of their parts? Wrong. <laughs> Thank you. Nice. Was, this, was, was this an intentional strategy on one or both of their parts? Did, did Hillary's debate coaches intentionally tell her, don't interrupt him? 
Or did Donald Trump's debate coaches tell him, uh, make sure that you dominate the conversation and, and appear uh, uh, strong and aggressive and active? But my first question is, do we have confirmation that Donald Trump had debate coaches? Oh, come I'm on. not actually I mean, <laughs> so sure about that point. Okay, so, so I mean, <laughs> one of the things we don't see is the, on the, is the inside of these two candidates' right. debate preps. What we get is this, the narratives about those debate preps. Because we talked right. about last time, the expectations game completely obscures what uh-huh. they're uh-huh. actually doing. Right. So the rule, the, the, the expectations game was Donald Trump wasn't really preparing. He was going to yep. kind of just, he was going to wing it or he was going to go off on his own sort of uh, normal speaking style. And the Hillary Clinton was, was, was holed up with binders full of facts uh, about all the different issues. At least they weren't full of women. They weren't, full of, they weren't yeah. Mitt Romney's binders full of women. They were Hillary Clinton's binders full of facts. Um, but, they, but, but that's the expectations game, right? I have right. every reason to believe that both of these candidates at some point uh, poured a serious amount of energy into, into preparing for this debate. And given what's happened in this debate, I have every reason to believe that Donald Trump will spend more energy preparing for the next and debate. And Ted Cruz has volunteered to help him. So. Really? Yes, that was one of the you other think news Donald stories. Trump takes that help. I don't know, and I would like to. But I would like to imagine the possibility of Ted Cruz playing Hillary Clinton during the debate <laughs> prep. I think that would be kind of fun. One one of the things I think uh, Politico actually reported on this. Uh, I think like just the day before the debate was they were saying. I think following exactly what what uh, what you're saying, Chris. They were they were basically reporting that that all of the Trump isn't preparing for the debates. Uh, narrative is basically overblown um, and saying that he has actually paid a couple of consulting groups to try to give him a quote unquote like psychological profile of Hillary Clinton so that he could try to find ways to get under her skin and find ways to sort of try to try to needle her and things like that. So so I think and, that unless unless that sounds to you that uh, um, abhorrent. Candidates do this all the time, right? And and, right, and right. which which is oh, exactly yeah, she totally what was doing that too, right? I mean, yeah. this this is exactly no what Hillary Clinton was clearly preparing to do. She was try she came out yeah. with all sorts of things to try to poke Trump into, um, you know, upsetting him and you know getting him to getting him to sort of go off and be and be mm-hmm. angry Trump, which she right. was successful. Yeah, yeah it worked um, very well. And yeah, so. Uh, let's see. I can't remember the question. I was about debate prep, but <laughs> do you th- do you think that these candidates? Um, and their, their debate style was intentional or part of oh. who they are. How much should we read into that? Well, I mean, I don't. Ne- those aren't necessarily either. I think it was very That's much who they are. I mean, yeah. I think they both they both basically, other than like I said, the fir- Donald Trump in the first few minutes I thought was a little more restrained than I expected. Um, other than that, they both were very much the you know the kind of debaters I expected them to be. Mm. Um, so it felt very much like who they are. But if you're you know if, if you're doing good prep, right, you should be taking candidates and using their strengths, right? I mean, like, you're not going to make Donald Trump into not Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton into not Hillary Clinton, right? You can't turn Hillary Clinton Or you Clinton only do it at your peril because... It right, really, it's, it, it's it, not going to hold up, right? Yeah. It's just not going to hold up, and it's not going to seem genuine. So you have to try to make it work with who the candidates are. And so I thought, you know, Hillary Clinton seemed very much like what she is, which is she's very wonkish. She can sort of sit there and take some shots. But she's not going to probably win a yelling match, and that's probably not her, right. her strength. And she doesn't want to get into a yelling match. I mean, like, for example, one thing... We talked about on Monday when we did our, our pre-debate pre, um, sort of mini-podcast was, you know, whether she would avoid being shrill. And I thought she was incredibly successful at that. I mean, her right. voice tones were just excellent for her because she also usually really struggles. And her facials were point. great. Yeah. Like, so she clearly practiced that. I mean, moderating her voice tones and keeping her face, you know, um, on either an, a smile a or, smile or a, a sort concerned, of, fr- yeah, thoughtful frown. Yeah, a sort of concerned and thoughtful frown. Like, I'm looking out for the American people's interests kind of frown, right? I mean, so she was very careful. So I thought, in that sense, her prep was incredibly successful. I'm In his case, I mean, I feel like he had a plan. Maybe he stuck with it for the first few minutes. But after that, it just felt like he was kind of doing his Trump, you know, off-the-cuff thing. Right. Um, maybe mm-hmm. that's a plan. I don't know. But it didn't seem like it to me. 
Well, I, I feel like I want to talk now about how everyone else has interpreted this debate. So mm -hmm. both of you sort of gave the edge to Hillary here, which was what most of the commentators right. did immediately following the debate as well, mm -hmm. except for the very far right sure. uh, uh, news sources. Most people said Hillary Clinton seemed to dominate this debate. Right. But that's not what the snap poll said. Have you guys heard of a snap poll <laughs> oh, yeah. before? Yes. Okay, so a whole series, which Donald Trump has subsequently been retweeting and actually advertising on his mm -hmm. in his, in his uh, online materials. He likes polls. A whole series of <laughs> polls have called this debate overwhelmingly for Trump. Right. What are these polls? What are snap polls? Well, they're, I mean, they, they tend to be polls where people can just sort of go on and vote and sometimes vote repeatedly in the same poll. Online. Right, online. Um, and so they, they don't measure public opinion very well. But what they do measure, and this gets to the point of, like, how much does this debate matter, right? What they often can tell us something about is how enthused people are, right? I mean, yeah. if somebody's enthused enough to go on and vote for Trump 50 times, and that does take some time, right? So, like, <laughs> I'm really excited about Donald Trump's candidacy. I'm going to go on and vote 50 times in 50 different <laughs> polls or 50 times in one poll or whatever you do it, right? Um, and that tells you something about how enthused that candidate mm -hmm. or that, that person is about the candidate. Um, so that that might tell us something, right? If, if the enthusiasm levels for Trump remain higher than they are for Hillary Clinton, and I think going into the debate, I would have said the enthusiasm levels among his supporters are higher than they are among her supporters, um, then that matters, right? And then that, that makes this debate, even if she wins on points, much less significant. So, you know, so far there's no overwhelming evidence that I'm seeing in the polls of things moving. They, there's one poll I've seen that came out since the debate, that was done since the debate, and had her up by four points, but still within the margin of error. So it sure. doesn't tell us a whole lot. For some of, for some of the polls, I would, I, I would absolutely agree with what you just said. Uh, Time Magazine ran an mm -hmm. online poll. And, the, right. and by the way, uh, folks, these things are like Mer American Idol style online popularity contests. Yeah. Yeah. Go on and vote as many times as you want. Um, so it rewards a small group of people right. who are highly enthusiastic. And it's not a random group of people. It's whoever, it's whoever goes on. To go on there and do yeah, it. absolutely. So it doesn't tell us anything about who's going to vote for whom. But for Time Magazine, the edge was sort of 60-40 Trump. Right. So mm -hmm. that might suggest something about enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. Now, the Drudge Report also ran an online <laughs> poll that, and if you're not familiar with the Drudge Report, it's a it's a far right uh, uh, online media outlet, right? Um, and 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 Trump got an eighty twenty win there, but which raises the interesting question: What twenty percent of people are going to the Drudge Report that actually thought Hillary Clinton won that debate? I know there's, um, there's some very fair-minded Republicans or yeah, Drudge fair Republicans or some some, some <laughs> so. liberals who got lost on the internet, basically. Um, these are these are sites that the liberals aren't reading, like the Democrats aren't yeah. reading, and then so. This, these are just not valid polls. Now, we do have a right. couple polls that are relatively valid. Um, we talked a, a couple of, a previous episode about panel polling. Mm -hmm, we had an mm -hmm. online panel poll that I think was run by um, CNN uh, that, right. sh that, gave, that gave Hillary sort of a two-to-one win, like sort of a 60-30 mm -hmm. win. And that seems about right to me. Mm -hmm. um, this, this should be a, a convincing win, but not a, you know, um, Donald Trump didn't go scoreless. Right. He, I mean, mm -hmm. he, he made a few points, too. Yeah, he had some good moments, and I thought both of them, I mean, for both of them, they, they, had, they had some good moments, and they both had moments where they really missed opportunities. I mean, I thought that um, they just, like, Hillary had a solid win on points, but hardly a knockout. I mean, it wasn't, like, spectacular. For so, like, a couple, couple reservations about her performance. I mean, one is, even bringing up the women, which we talked sure. about already, it, it felt a little like she forced that into the conversation. It yes. wasn't really asked... Um, and so she brought up all the ugly things that Donald Trump said, and, and that she's not wrong about mo those for the most part. I mean, but but it felt a little harsh. I mean, like you're bringing up these, you're dragging out these things he said years and years ago, um, and you're the one who's having to say all these ugly things because he's not saying them, right? And then you're just trying to make him defend them. So you know, I'm not sure how that plays. Like, does it help her? Maybe because it reminds people of, of these things. On the other hand, for any voter who wants to know, they're they're very easy to find. Um, <laughs> and I'm not sure bringing it up in the debate. 
helps her very much. It would have helped her much more if Lester Holt had, you know, asked a question about that. Or if it been more um, organic in the conversation. Right, if it been more, somehow. you know, sort of really, yeah, come, come in naturally as opposed to her sort of jamming it in. The other moment I thought was not great for her was the race question, actually, which her answer was better than Trump's, but not brilliant because it, it felt very clinical when it could have been a great moment for her to be very human, which is one of Hillary's issues, right? I mean, she's not considered very likable. She's not considered very warm. And this could have been a moment for her to talk about you know, sort of her deep connections with the African-American community. Um, she could have talked about how she would have felt sort of, you know, um, sort of the Obama's, you know, like if I had a son, he, could have, he would have looked like Trayvon kind of thing. Yes. I mean, something like, you know, something like that where you make it personal and you show a deep empathy instead of saying we need to retrain police, which is like, OK, fine, but maybe not the most emotionally powerful response and sort of. Um, sort of moving voters toward her and making them feel closer to her. So it didn't feel like a great moment. For Trump, I mean, his biggest botch to me was the cybersecurity question, where he rambled on and on and talked about his Mm -hmm. 10-year-old son and somehow managed to not bring up there, again, the email server of Hillary Clinton, which was an obvious moment when you bring Mm -hmm. up the email server and talk about how your opponent has jeopardized national security already. So he's talking about 400-pound hackers. Right. Yeah. I mean, right. He's talking about 400-pound hackers and 10-year-old sons. Instead of bringing up the did fact he, that the president... Did he lose, did he lose the pseudonym. obese vote? Uh, yeah, he probably lost the obese vote. But I mean, I think it's probably a safe bet. He'd already lost them after the <laughs> Miss Universe. Oh, stuff. yeah, fair point. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so he was willing to sacrifice that one. But but I thought, you know, I mean, like, this is a great moment for him to bring up the fact that, you know, the, the Secretary of State is emailing with the president on an unsecured server um, and the president's using a pseudonym. So they know what they're doing. They know this is kind of dodgy. And you slam her for that, right? That's a great right. opportunity, mm-hmm. and he simply didn't grab it. So yeah. that was yeah. interesting. I, I think in terms of like in terms of Trump wins, especially, I think one of the big Trump wins is just the fact that he was on the stage with Hillary Clinton. Um, and right. I think you know, <laughs> no, I, and, I, and I mean that seriously. You know, okay. I think I think I think I think one of the things that uh, you know. It, when we when when we look at the debates, uh, mm-hmm. one of the things that Trump has needed is to you know everybody talks about he needs to look presidential, but I think mm-hmm. one of the things that helps him quote unquote look presidential is just the fact that he is in a presidential debate. This is the normalization and, argument, yeah. right? And yeah. so and so and so just for Trump to simply be on that stage, I think no matter what, that was going to be a point in his favor, sure, um, because now he's been on the stage, he has participated mm-hmm. in this mm-hmm. you know ritual that we have as over the last couple of decades has become you know just part of the presidential election race, right? Um, um, and and the fact that you know that he's there standing next to somebody that we know is 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 a normal um, you know practitioner of high level American politics, um, mm-hmm. and so just the fact that he was there on that stage in that context um, is is a major point in his favor. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Well, I want to just go back a little bit to the to the the issue of race that came right. up in the in the debate. Yeah. Uh, I thought that this was actually Trump's weakest moment. Uh, oh, yeah. to, no, I, I agree with you. Yeah. Hillary Clinton didn't do a particularly good job either. Yeah. But Donald Trump had gotten on to trying yeah. to explain his birtherism oh. um, and his the spin that he's yeah. putting on it uh, is that the Hillary Clinton campaign uh, initiated the birtherism controversy back in 2008. This is pretty demonstrably not true. Mm-hmm. But that he resolved the debate by calling for five years for Obama to, to um, reveal his birth certificate. This is also an obfuscation because even after... Uh, Obama produced his birth certificate in 2011. Trump continued to make allegations that it wasn't legitimate. I mean, so, it was like what two weeks ago that he finally is like, "I'm now satisfied." Yeah, two, two like weeks five ago. Years two after weeks, two weeks ago, he, he walked on stage. He said, "President Obama was born in the United States." Period, and then walked off. Right. And when asked later why he did that, he said, "I want to get on with the election." Right. Meaning, I don't necessarily believe this, but I want to stop talking <laughs> about it because I want to have a chance to become president. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it's not particularly inspiring, but, but uh, that's not the point I want to make. The point I want to make is that he was. 
trying to justify his his birtherism and say that he was doing he was doing a service to the American people by getting the the the, uh, the birth certificate uh, revealed, and then Lester Holt redirected him and said, "What do you have to say to the African American community?" And it caught Trump off guard, mm-hmm. and he eventually stammered out, "I have nothing to say. I, I say nothing." Mm-hmm. And and that looked I think that looked incredibly weak. Now yeah. I, I don't know what how much of a resonance that has because. Trump is getting a very tiny proportion of the African American right. vote to begin with, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it it can't look good for anybody who is supporting Trump, who's looking for an excuse to show that he's not racist, right, or not yeah. uh, racially motivated in some kinds of ways. Right. It, it, it was it was a it was a hard it was a hard. I think it was the worst moment for me from him in the in the, in the debate. Yeah, it felt like one of the most awkward. And and the other thing, I mean, like when he was asked the race question, he leads off with law and order, which mm-hmm. could have been okay if he had then circled back to saying this is you know there's two sides to this, and one side is we need to be a country of laws and respect those laws, and the other side is we need to make sure those laws are treating people equally. But he didn't go there, right? I mean, that's where he needed to go with that and say right. he, the you way know, he we said need to be even handed, and there are problems, and we need to. Find a way to deal with them, and then you bring it back and you hammer the president. And you know, and they told us in 2008 that you know electing an African American president would heal these divisions. They've gotten worse. I mean, you make that mm-hmm. case, right? And that's the case he could have made that might have actually had some resonance. Instead, it was just a law and order, law and order, ramble, ramble, ramble kind he of said, answer. The first time he said it, it was work. very portentous. He said, "There's yeah. three words. Or there's there's two words that Hillary Clinton will right. not say: exactly. law and order." Yep. And I was so tempted to just go bum bum. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And frankly, I mean, like, and that wasn't a great moment. But if he had entered his answer there, he would have been better off than with what he said afterwards. Which sure. Didn't didn't now, help at all. Now, but. one of my good students, I hope she's listening, but one of my good students wrote a pay, uh, senior sum paper uh, last year on dog whistle politics. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. lo- the phrase law and order, the way that Trump used it, this is a dog whistle. Mm-hmm. Um, what's a dog What's dog whistling? Mitchell has a dog. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you do. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, a dog whistle is just a whistle that only the dog can hear. It's uh, right. such a high frequency that a uh, person can't hear it. So in politics, a dog whistle is a specific kind of phrase or terminology mm-hmm. that would fly over the head of most voters, but would really appeal to a specific set of voters. Right. Yep. So, for example, when uh, George Bush would would famously George W. Bush would work lines from the New Testament into speeches, just little phrases, phrases. Mm-hmm. This would resonate with evangelicals. Right. No one mm-hmm. else would really pay attention much to what it meant, but for right. us, it was sort of a signal. I'm one of you. I know right. you. You're, I'm right. part of you. Right. And that can be very appealing. Mm-hmm. And this can be used in a positive way. It can be used in sort of a nefarious way. I'm convinced that uh, that dog whistle politics was used in this law and order phrase uh, to talk about the um, the current state of tensions between uh, police and um, people of color in the United States. Yeah, I think I think that's right. So, so Chris. Uh, we we're sort of running low on time, but did mm-hmm. you want to touch on the events at Bethel and kind of tie that into um, to this debate? Because I think it does really relate to the the issues we've been talking about with sort of the the, um, the race question, the way that was handled, sure. and, um, and some of the other things that are going on in our country even now. So let me try and give a quick rundown here. Uh, Bethel is a, as we've told, said before, is a small Christian liberal arts university in St. Paul, Minnesota. We're founded by Swedish Baptists, and we have a couple things working towards making us relatively quietist. Uh, we're, uh, we're, we're, nor- we're Midwesterners, and we're Nordics, and, uh, or, um, and uh, as, a, as a consequence, we tend to be somewhat conflict-avoidant around here as a general <laughs> cultural rule. That said, um, this, is a, this is not a campus known for demonstrations and protests. Not at but all. that changed yesterday, just outside my office. Uh, we have a rock on campus, sort of a footlocker-sized rock. A lot, of ca- a lot of schools have rocks like that. They get painted by various mm-hmm. student groups mm-hmm. and various student colors for different kinds of things. 
And earlier this week, uh, the, the Rock was painted uh, with the phrase Black Lives Matter, hashtag Black Lives Matter, uh, in response to another small Christian university down the road from us, which mm-hmm. had also had their Rock painted Black Lives Matter, which had then been painted over and, and, and the word black scratched out and the word all written in its place. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so some of our students uh, decided to, to sort, of, sort of show support for a university down the mm-hmm. road. And, and write Black Lives Matter and and, and Philando Castile, the uh, which is a national case. Uh, Philando Castile was killed by a police officer. Uh, that happened about a mile from Bethel. I mean, it's very very close to the university here. Well, last uh, two nights ago, uh, the Black Lives Matter was painted over on that rock uh, by students, and it was painted uh, Blue Lives Matter. Um, and it was also written BLM equals racist and double standard. Those mm-hmm. were all things painted on the rock. The reaction in the university has happened both at an institutional level but also at a student level. There was a, about a 300, maybe 350-person demonstration mm-hmm. in the main central uh, um, student commons area here on campus, um, which was organized by students affiliated with Black Lives Matter and was in opposition to uh, kind of the, the painting over of that rock. Mm-hmm. Our administration has generally in- issued uh, statements in favor of engagement with this uh with 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 the issue, like right, it would lean into right. the issue basically, um, are you know stipulating? Of course, police lives matter. Of course, as right. Christians, we right. value all life, uh, but we need to take ser- seriously the issues of race and, mm-hmm. and and racial prejudice in our society and racist issues in our society. So, um, I'm at a personal level, I'm pretty pleased with how our administration is responding to this and the and the forum it's creating to allow a conversation to happen. And as a political scientist, this is the most political event that's happened at Bethel University in my t- my eight years here. Mm-hmm. Ruben mm-hmm. Rivera, a historian and our chief diversity officer, said it's the most political event that's happened in his twenty years here. Mm-hmm. So this is a, this is novel for us, but not novel for the nation. Right, right, and kind of reflects some of the broader broader things we see going on elsewhere. Do you know? And I should know this. By the way, welcome <laughs> Sam Mulberry, yeah. who's back from his this meeting. This is like my Lou Gehrig official time at Bat, so I'm <laughs> yeah. actually on the podcast. Um, I should know this because I've been here longer than anyone, but. Um, but you're more tied into sort of BSG type things, Bethel Student Government, not Battlestar Galactica. Right. Just so we're clear. Do you know what the politics of the Rock is, or what they are? You mean Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage? No, I mean, oh. I mean, like, <laughs> I'm sorry. So, so I know what you're talking about. When the Rock is painted, is that something that students generally like get approval? Do they like sign up? Because the Rock is painted okay. a lot, and I don't it know. I, I'm like. Is that an official thing? Because it it, it yeah. has a very prominent place in the cam- on the campus, right. yeah, and I've never too. known that. And I, I don't know if any of, if any of you I have know. no idea what this. I have is. no idea. That would be a great question. If, if there isn't for... a policy about rock painting, there certainly is going to be one soon. Right. Um, yeah, I think that's. Fair. But it seems like a very official thing to be unofficial. Like it is in the middle of like our. Right. If Bethel had a quad, it's in the middle of yeah, the quad. It's our main court exactly. Right. I can't speak to Bethel. What I do, what I, what I don't know, is whether there's an official policy around rock painting. Maybe we can try and find that out before our next podcast. Yeah, I, I, I would really love to ask our student body. But clearly, president because we have rules about other kinds of advertisement all around campus, and because this is a private university, uh, we do limit you know off-campus solicitation and all those sorts mm-hmm. of things uh, coming here onto campus. I would imagine there's a policy, but I just don't know what it is. Yeah. yeah. My university mm-hmm. that I went to for undergraduate, Albion College, also has a very large rock, also on its quad, also painted very frequently, and the standing rule there i'm not sure if it was officially codified or not was whatever was painted had to be allowed to stand for 12 hours okay after which it could be repainted by somebody else okay and if i can uh just tell one brief semi uh amusing story my wife was the president of her sorority 
uh, at, at Albion, and she learned that the uh, the technique to leave paint on there longer, if you wanted to, was a thin coat of Vaseline applied to your recent paint job would prevent anybody else from painting over it until the Vaseline washed off. Hmm. Um, so that was you know, during hot during seasons with <laughs> lots of activities and things, people would sort of vie to see who could control painting the rock, and and that was sort of a little extra hmm. tactic that was applied sometimes. So for Bethel students who are listening, now they know. Now you know. Um, a little bit of Vaseline over your rock keeps it from getting repainted. Right. Yep. Well, um, we're on, on behalf of my colleagues here, um, we're obviously we're praying for the events here at our university. Mm-hmm. We're praying for healing and for conversation and for dialogue. We're also doing that for um, places around the country that are riven by division. Right. Uh, this is a, ten- this is a uh, tense and divisive political time. And hopefully as political scientists and historians, um, we can uh, try to bridge some of those divisions. That's our aim. On behalf of my colleagues, I'm Chris Moore here at Bethel University. And as always, go Royals. Go Royals.